What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. All right, hi everyone and welcome to another edition of Sick Individuals, Sick Population, uh, the podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science. Um, so thanks again for joining us uh, today. Um, and by the point that we're recording this, uh, the COVID pandemic has been raging on in the U.S. for just about a year. We're almost up to the exact anniversary. Um, and so although we're very likely on our way out of this unprecedented moment in time, uh, kind of with vaccine distribution ramping up across the country, uh, we'll likely be dealing with the social, economic, and equity-related consequences of this event for some indefinite amount of time into the future. Um, and so while everyone across the country has been feeling the uh, kind of pandemic, uh, one place where the fallout has been really apparent is uh, in academia. Um, and some, some stories that I'm sure that we've all heard on the ground, uh, this pandemic has created a real wide range of unique challenges for scholars, um, but particularly for kind of early career scholars, such as assistant professors, postdocs, um, and graduate students of color. Um, and so today, we want to bring forth some of these stories and highlight the challenges that uh, some of our early career scholars have experienced in their professional lives as the country has continued to grapple with this pandemic. Um, with that very cheerful uh, introduction, I want to welcome in everyone and say thanks for taking time to kind of chat with us today about such a critical topic. Um, and so before we go and get into uh, the nitty gritty of the conversation, uh, could we have all you go around and introduce yourselves uh, to our listeners? Sure. Hello, my name is Santi Stanley. I am a third year doctoral candidate at Washington State University in the Department of Sociology. I study broadly mortality disparities amongst racial and ethnic minorities, but more specifically, I study uh, preventable mortality among American Indian and Alaska Native populations. Hi everyone, um, my name is Kevin Martinez. I am a second year PhD student in epidemiology at Drexel University. I am a medical doctor. I, I was training in Guatemala where I where I, I born and I, and I was raised. And I just moved to the US in 2019. So that's just before everything started. So I just had like six months prior to understand the before and after. <laughs> so without that's that's it thanks uh, okay boy um hello my name is um dr zamar yervita tuthill and i am an assistant professor starting my first year finishing kind of it's weird because i'm i had a baby like a month ago so i'm on i'm not on leave because it's texas so there's no maternity leave but I'm on a uh, redistribution uh, plan. So I'm not teaching this semester, um, but I'm finishing up my first year here um, and my position. 
and I am a working parent in the pandemic. So I have a two-year-old and a one-month-old that you might hear in the background, and I don't know about muting or editing that, but I just hear him screaming now. So that's very much been my um, experience, my lived experience for the past year. So excited to talk about that. <laughs> okay, making it really real, okay. So thanks again to everyone for joining us and especially for you all who are either new to the, the pandemic version of, of public health in the real life um, or if you're parenting, um, congratulations on your new appointment and your new child. That's, that's amazing news. Um, so just to, to start off a little bit about how your adjustments to your work life have been during the pandemic. And for those, especially for you have, who've recently transitioned to new positions or in the process of seeking out new appointments, can you tell us a little bit about what your life has, has been like recently? Sure, I can start. Um, so I, my situation, it was very, I don't know, I mean, I, I hear from blogs and stuff that <laughs> people who had similar situations as mine, but I received my offer right before the pandemic, but it wasn't finalized. So right when the pandemic hit, I was told by the university that my offer might not go through. So mm. there's wow. a hiring freeze. And so for like two to three months, there, I was in limbo about mm. whether I had a job or not. As many people did, many people were losing mm. their jobs. In academia, I heard of people who had offer verbal offers and then they mm -hmm. were rescinded. And so it was very much a new um, experience for my advisors as well, because they had never had this happen to them either with the pandemic and the financial cutbacks at the university. These were decisions that were being made at not in the department level or the college level, but at the very top. And so mm -hmm. it felt there's a sense of helplessness and no one knew, I didn't know whether I was gonna have a job um, come fall. So I was in the middle of dissertating and um, with everything happening, I had to make, I had to pivot about whether I was going to go into industry, which didn't look better during the pandemic. Uh, if I was going to just stay another year at my um, program. So that entailed looking, scrambling for funding last minute because I was expecting to graduate in May. So thankfully, um, in the end, I ended up getting the offer, um, but that meant that I had to, I was given like two weeks um, notice to say like, hey, within the next two weeks, you have to defend your dissertation because you have this job. Um, and so I ended my dissertation July 31st and started working like August 15th. So it oh, was very much. No, nah. -uh. Yeah, so it, it felt like I didn't really have that summer that everyone wanted. You know, everyone yeah, planned. Right. Like, I didn't have a graduation. I didn't yeah, walk. Yeah. I didn't get hooded. I didn't mm. have a party. I didn't yeah. have anyone at my dissertation. It was online on Zoom. I didn't have orientation for my new job. It was a eight hour Zoom virtual mm. orientation with everyone's cameras turned off. Mm. I didn't have the on-campus welcome party. I had, yeah. there are some colleagues that I've never met in person. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been very much, a, it still feels like I haven't started working. Like I get yeah. a paycheck, yeah. so yeah, yeah. you know it's real because I get yeah. paid but the transition just hasn't really happened. And I was supposed to have my children in daycare, but um, because I was pregnant um, last year, 
um, and with the high risk um, and being in Texas, being a hotspot, um, I just, my um, uh, medical provider um, kind of warned me against sending my child to daycare. Mm -hmm. So I was working at home with my child, not in daycare, starting my first semester teaching, mm -hmm. um, transitioning to a new position. All of my colleagues were also at home with children or transitioning to um, online. And so it really much felt like I was on my own. And so it's it's been a very overwhelming experience, but I've gotten kind of used to um, this online format. And now I got an email today saying we're switching to face-to-face. -face. So mm -hmm. it seems like I'm starting my new year yeah. all over again. Yeah. So it's oh, just, it's just goodness. weird. It's like, I, I'm the new person twice, twice yeah. in a year. So, yeah. so that's been a, a kind of long summary of my last, of my 2020. And um, it's been, it's, it, I mean, I would like to say it was great. I don't think I learned anything. Like, you know, you're supposed to say like, what did you learn? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. learn anything. Like, no, I just learned, you know, uh, that a lot of people have, you know, it, I've, I've learned what people's houses look like. But uh, <laughs> other than that, it's just, it's been very, very strange. It's a strange feeling to not feel like, uh, you, you know, we spend decades, at least for me, in academia to get this ideal mm -hmm. of what it's like, you know, people's weddings were canceled. And I was like, yeah, but that's a wedding. I was like, you know, mm -hmm. my, I was waiting for my mom to watch me mm -hmm. get hooded. And I didn't have that moment was taken from me. And so there's a lot of mourning in that as well. Yeah. And so it's just been a very emotional and stressful time. Yeah, yeah. For the people that aren't can't see everyone's faces right now, um, when the description of you not being able to celebrate, uh, kind of like the you know, multiple years of uh, kind of like hard work that you put in the dissertation, like everyone just kind of went into shock because like I can't imagine that feeling. And mm -hmm. it seemed like a lot on the grand scheme of things, and especially compared to some of the other challenges that you set through and you just described through the year, but that is, that's real. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's especially tough. I mean, I think for most of us in our, in our lives right now, contemporarily, we haven't been through this. So people often describe this time as building an airplane while you're flying it. And right. so it's a lot of adjustment and adaptation to just the unknown. Um, I think the other thing is that if you're in the academy for any period of time, whether you're a student, postdoc, faculty member, the wins are very few and far in between. For sure. And so when you get an opportunity to celebrate your moment, whatever that moment might be, whether it's graduating and like you said, getting hooded, um, celebrating with your family, people finally get the gravity of what you've been working on for so long. Mm -hmm. And while you're still in school, which I'm sure our doctoral students here can, can attest to, people still don't know what I do for a living. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's just a lot. And to not, to that is worthy to, to mourn. I think we have to give ourselves a lot of grace to, to be able to mourn um, the loss there. For sure. Yeah, so my, my graduate, experience so far has especially at the beginning of the pandemic I didn't have to deal with nearly as much as some did but um I was at a critical moment in my graduate process I was completing prelims and I had set up 
like this fantastic schedule for myself. I was right on track. I was, you know, being so productive. And then all of a sudden the campus closed. We can't go to school. We can't leave our houses. Mm -hmm. Now I'm having to convert my very extremely small apartment into an office space and a living space. So I spent two months worrying about, you know, what exactly is my prelim process now? Do I have to still turn in my prelims on the same date, even though, you know, I'm literally writing my prelim on a stool. I was, I found a stool in my house. I didn't have a chair. I was like, okay, I'm going to sit on the stool and I'm going to makeshift some sort of desk out of a table and Mm -hmm. we're just going to do this. And so it was just I felt like MacGyver it was just (laughs) terrible having to figure out you know how to you know convert from being having an office space having a place to go now to you know being in this uncomfortable position where I have to figure everything out again and kind of derail myself and get off track but my department was helpful in you know, pushing back the deadline for prelims because it seemed like with every passing day, everything just got worse um, in terms of, you know, the pandemic. And so we kind of pivoted and I'm glad the department was, I'm sorry, that's my dog in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Again, still dealing with like the issue of being at home. like my neighbors walking over me, my dog in the background, my cat doing cat things. It's crazy. But yeah, having to, having to pivot at this pivotal moment was really nerve wracking for myself and the other folks in my cohort and just trying to figure out, you know, one, how do I not get sick? Two, how do I not die? Especially because I have, you know, um, uh, an illness that puts me at high risk for, for contracting COVID and, and, being like possibly dying like how do I stay alive how do I finish these prelims and Mm -hmm. and how do I eventually dissertate were kind of my main concerns first things first stay alive right yeah well um, no actually not but we can talk about that later yeah we'll get to that in a second yeah (laughs) that is actually not what academia believes (laughs) yeah I mean like uh and that's that does say something about our profession because like you know you just said it like there were mortality concerns like during a pandemic. And I was like, wow, I never thought about that for an academic, right? Like, cause it's just not like kind of like that wasn't in the messaging, like everybody stay safe, then get your work done, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's like harder to get work done because you're at home, never bringing up the fact that, oh yeah, we are kind of at risk and, you know, right. risk of like kind of like dying, right? Yeah. Re- yeah. Yeah, it was definitely a frightening position to be in for Ooh. sure. Um, and it still is because, you know, sure. we're still yeah. a year hanging in there and we're still seeing peaks. We're still seeing all of these different things, but mm-hmm. yeah. Wow, I, I don't know what to say after that. Like both of you have been like really, really like an example for 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 being here. Like it's it's really tough and I and I really admire you. My situation was um, so I came here in September of 19. So I, it was like in the fall. I really enjoyed it during that time. That was my first time in the U.S. too. So it was like everything was new. Everything was nice. Then the winter came. 
and everything was new and, and nice and, and, <laughs> and holidays and everything. And that was my, my first two terms in, in, in my PhD program. And then on March 13, like everything changed, right? Mm -hmm. Everything was like from, from being with my colleagues that by that time they were like my friends already. They, I, I already had some friends. And by March the 13, I just remember that I walked into my office with a suitcase where I put my monitor, my keyboard, my mouse, and my laptop. And then I came home, like, like surreal. Like yeah. in my, I, I went to the, to the trolley here in Philly and I was like, this is not happening. Like yeah. I am an epidemiologist, but you don't prepare <laughs> mentally for that. Like it's like, you know, just study this without thinking that someday a pandemic will happen. Mm -hmm. and, and it's something that we read in books and history papers and everything, but you don't think that you will believe through one, right? right. Like now, right. not in, that, in this time. Right. So I came home, I have a son. So I pick up my son at, at school. He's in, in kindergarten right now. He was in pre-K by that time. Uh, and I don't know, I was, I was shocked. I was shocked. And by that night, uh, the first case of COVID was detected in Guatemala. So I have like a completely different shock because my, my, my family was there. I have my, uh, my father-in-law, he's 80 years old right now. Mm -hmm. So I, and he, he has diabetes, he has uh, like other medical conditions. So I was worried. I was like, wow, I was shocked. That was just the third thing. After that, I started like in, in, in negation. I was like, okay, I am a epidemiologist, but I am a chronic researcher. I, I am a chronic disease researcher. I don't have anything with infectious diseases. So I am not going to. I am not going to do anything. I, I am just trying to focus on my work, and that's it. But that was hard. Like I, I, I cannot see like everything happen and mm -hmm. not doing anything. And and so I, I was, I was like I was shocked in, in every sense of the word. I was shocked. I don't. I don't. I, I didn't know what to do, what to think, what to say, what. It was, it was a time that I was practically speechless. After a couple of months that I realized that I, that I could do something because in, in Guatemala, the, the, there is not so many like PhDs in epidemiology. So I am one of the really few. So I started to doing like the only thing that I knew that, I, that it's like analyzing data. <laughs> so I, I started like pulling out data. I started to, to, to send emails to another friend, like, hey, I want to do something. Do you have any data that I can analyze? So I started to, I, I got access to the mortality data sets from, from Guatemala and I started to doing the, the excess mortality analysis for, for the country. And, and it was kind of shocking. I, I had been doing that analysis monthly and it had been helpful for the ministry of health they have using it they have they, they are using this analysis to set up the bar for the high risk populations like based on my analysis they are they they they, they made some recommendations for vaccines right now mm -hmm. but i was like that's the output right now but during that time i was i was worried that someday in these data sets like each row represents a person right so yeah, it's right it's shocking when i was yeah. seeing like oh we have like 1000 2000 3000 excess mortality deaths that's like 3000 families yeah. that lost something someone yeah. and and while i was i i was trying to handle like the virtual school with my son and 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 my wife and everything was it was shocking i i but but, but still I, I i i really admire you guys because you have been through a lot of like mine since like small <laughs> but 
but yeah, that was that was my my experience. Yeah, well, thanks to everyone for sharing. It's, it's been a really tough time for for everyone, and just the the baseline level of anxiety. Um, it's yeah. just like a ambient, always there buzz of anxiety, um, trying to stay alive, trying not to get sick. In addition to adhering to all the things that we're expected to do in these really highly demanding positions. And as Kevin mentioned, a lot of us have been put in place, no matter what our expertise might be, to, to kind of step to the table and bring those, those skills and expertise to bear. So never a, a dull moment during the pandemic. Definitely. And kind of piggybacking off of that, let's kind of pivot to our next question, right? So um, let's talk a little bit more. We heard a little bit in this, some of your answers already, but like what exactly have your institutions been doing to kind of like help you manage this kind of ambient anxiety and kind of all the other challenges that you're facing uh, right now, right? So are they doing things like kind of, or what kind of things are they doing to, you know, ease your support from working from home, uh, kind of support like this kind of uncertainty around whether you're going to have to prepare a class for online or not, uh, or navigate things like a very very, very uncertain um, job market. And if you don't wanna call out your own institution, um, if you wanna instead think about like if you were in charge of a nameless academic institution or department at the moment, like what sorts of things would you wanna provide to your kind of early career faculty or graduate students to kind of help ensure their well-being and make sure that they can achieve their goals for kind of the next couple of years? I think I could speak from the faculty standpoint and as a woman of color, I feel like we're the counselors, like my like students unload to me, like even virtually um, very quickly. Um, so I had healthcare workers in my classes. I had parents. I had people whose parents died of COVID. I had football players who talked about getting COVID and that was not being broadcast, you know, at, university wide and about just all these stories that I kept hearing from students. And so at the same time that we were being told, um, you know, uh, be compassionate and empathetic to your mm -hmm. students. We also on, you know, I had my own, like everyone, mm -hmm. I'm first generation, everyone in my family is an essential worker. Everyone was still working. Mm -hmm. Uh, my brother worked at Target and, you know, he was exposed so many times. And so while I was trying to handle my family and um, these COVID scares and trying to get resources and information about going, getting testing and things, I was also dealing with the trauma and the um, issues that my students were dealing with. And I think that there's not an equal distribution of work and emotional labor that faculty are doing with that. And so even within being a new faculty member, not having a lot of experience in um, building those relationships with students, they just quickly um, just felt, and uh, it, it was just this um, kind of obligation also to, I'm in a Hispanic serving institution, so, it's kind of this obligation as I know that other his, other Latino students come to me because they see me as someone that they can relate to and they share things with me that I have myself have experienced. But at the same time, there's this um, 
personally, there's just only so much I can take without it being like an, without it, without it being to a point where I know as a health researcher that I am, you know, high stress and accumulation of high stress over a long period of time is not good for my body and is not fairly distributed. And I'm doing a lot of extra work that I'm not able to put on a CV or and I'm not able to say to my chair, like, hey, today I did 30 hours of emotional labor. Like, you know, I want to be recognized for that. It's a lot of unspoken things behind the scenes that we do as faculty of color, as women of color. And so for me, I've gotten a lot of support from informal networks. And so I'm part of a group at my university called the Women of Color Coalition. And so it's a group of women of color who meet every month and we just kind of unload and we talk to each other. And so I would share about how scared I was being pregnant, being a Latina, um, knowing that my pregnancy was completely different. Um, everything was done by myself, seeing the high risk for pregnant women, seeing, knowing the maternal mortality rates for black women, knowing that it was just gonna get worse during the pandemic, knowing that living with that, being a researcher and experiencing that. And so, I was able to have that informal network, but I think that at the university level and for a lot of universities, it was just uh, uh, that we were just doing band-aid solutions mm -hmm. and it just really, as in every institution, showed the depth of issues of inequality, exploitation, and inequity that are available in terms of non-tenure track positions, the vulnerability of mm -hmm. graduate students, the, um, the you know, very weak medical care system, the mm -hmm. uh, unrealistic demands on academics to continue to publish during a pandemic. And so I think that, um, there's a lot of informal support and thankfully I'm in a sociology department who is very much aware of those um, inequalities, uh -huh. but I think that um, I saw many colleagues who kind of were just told um, to just hang in there, like just hang in there and you'll get through like this is almost done and we're almost a year in and I, I see some of my some of the people at my university and it's just like some people are just hanging on by a thread. And so mm -hmm. I think that there's so, sometimes there's just, um, it, it's a much bigger problem that I don't think that it's not pandemic, it's not because of the pandemic. These were problems that are, are there mm -hmm. for decades and mm -hmm. years. And um, the pandemic just showed, showed them, um, made them more visible but it definitely showed the vulnerability of this institution mm -hmm. and the fact that we just, um, you know, are, I, I don't know, I feel like there needs to be revamping of a lot of things, but we just don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So it, I don't know, it, it's kind of like you, you, you get, I, I, I wanted to be faculty so, for so long and I get here and I'm like, it's just a little better than a graduate student. <laughs> like, you know, the stress that, you know, the, how you feel, you, you just, I, I felt like I'd be faculty and then things would feel like, okay, like this is better. And I get here and I'm like, the stress is actually more. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, it, it, it just feels like um, there's support, thankfully for me, but that's not the case for a lot of people, uh, for a lot of faculty. And so I, I have compassion for that. 
Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned support because I feel like that's something that's lacking, especially for for people of color. And it sounds like even in faculty positions, but also, you know, as graduate students, I think that I would be remiss in not mentioning during, you know, at the height of the pandemic, the BLM, you know, movement. Mm-hmm and everything that was going on. And as, you know, a black graduate student at an extremely predominantly white (laughs) institution in a very white town, a very small town, um, it was very difficult to figure out how to engage with something that matters so much to me and matters so much to my family and matters so much to people who look like me. Um, It was difficult to to figure out how to share my feelings with the department in terms of having to work during not only a pandemic, but also having to work under the circumstances of this huge movement where black folks already knew what was going on. Brown folks already knew what was going on, but now people were just paying attention to it. And I'm like, this is a moment that I need to be a human being right now. And it seems like being a human being and being an academic are not meshing well together <laughs> right now because, because ac- the, ac- the academy isn't ready to have this discussion. As well-read as we are, as, as intelligent, as, you know, as much knowledge as we have, we're still not ready for these conversations. And you know, I wrote a letter to my department it was uh, extremely well received. I was very appreciative of all the feedback that I got about, you know, the commentary of um, the BLM movement and, you know, the pandemic and how all of being surrounded by all of this death and then having to study the death mm-hmm. is it is extremely, you know, stressful. It's very mm-hmm. stressful and <laughs> stress will kill you, just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like she said, you know. And I think that creating a space for folks to be able to share um, in a safe space for folks to be able to share is such a small thing that institutions could do for graduate students, for faculty, for for everyone. Um, Because sometimes it's really hard to create community on your own. I've tried it many times that many different institutions that I've been at trying to create some sort of small pocket of community for people of color and it's just hard because we're all spread out. We don't know each other. I could go months here without seeing another black person. It's it's really hard. And um, I think that that's something that the academy should look to. If they're if they're truly trying to be anti-racist, they should definitely look into figuring out how to create that kind of support for for the folks that are in the academy. Mm-hmm. No. It is always kind of remarkable because you see folks like uh, when I was at Michigan, for instance, uh, well, I guess I'm still technically there now. Um, but anyway, uh, when I was there, there was um, uh, a postdoc, uh, the black postdoc that started the black postdoc group, right? And uh, all they did was send an email to a couple of black postdocs um, or to a couple of departments asked about their black postdocs. They had a weekly, monthly, bi-weekly meetings, um, and it changed a lot of people's lives. Like, people were like, oh, I've been sitting here for two years, and I didn't know mm-hmm. anything. And all it takes is to, um, you know, like, just randomly emailing a bunch of different departments to make that sort of kind of institutional change um, that makes, like, a real big difference in people's lives. So the fact that we're not, like, kind of, like, you know, 
doing those small things um, or that those haven't been institutionalized across the board is kind of remarkable, especially given, you know, that we study this stuff and yeah. we know, right. know how much of a difference it's going to make, right? All right. Wow. So for me, the one of the things that the university did was uh, that all the grades was, were pass or no pass. Like it, mm-hmm. we, we didn't have grades anymore for the time that the pandemic last. The only bad thing for me was that as I was an international student, I have some other requirements, so mm-hmm. I was not allowed to take that. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that they could do that better because if, for term, th- terms of the visa, I have like a GPA to maintain and, and some mm-hmm. other thing that doesn't fit with the pass or no pass like scheme. So that was um, a thing that maybe they could do um, better. Um, another thing that it worries me about when, during the time of the pandemic was also these visa status that I don't know if you remind that during the time that everything started, um, there was uh, like a news that all the visas will be revoked. Like all the student, students that we are in J1 visas or F1 visas, we have to, to, to leave the country in some moment. And I was like, uh, again, again, like shocking. And I think that, that during that time was with, when everything of the BLM movement started hitting Philly too. So I was like worrying about the visa and everything. And I have like protests in my, in, in my, in my street. So I was, it was, it was, I don't know, culturally it was, it was shocking because we don't have like this racial discussion in my country. So it was really like enrichful to know and to, to, to know that things could be better. Like that's that that was the idea. My takeaway after all of that is like, this is this is a marathon, not a sprint, and that was just the beginning. We need to change. We need to be more like we need to do better, and 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 that that said, we need to do better, not just here in the U.S. but worldwide. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, there's there's a lot that we've all gone through over this last year. We've got dual pandemics, as we said on this podcast before. We've got the the continual struggle for racial equity um, that was punctuated by the Black Lives Matter movement over the summer um, in conjunction at the, simultaneously with, with a, a global pandemic. So um, for oftentimes faculty students of color, we're in these really privileged spaces and simultaneously knowing and experiencing the the brunt of, of what these dual pandemics have brought to us. And so some of you all spoke to this a little bit earlier, but thinking about the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on, on these different communities. And we know that this pandemic is not colorblind. And um, how are you all, you know, if you're comfortable sharing, how's the, the, plant, the pandemic really played out on your personal life? And, and it doesn't have to just be limited to the, you know, some of the things that we've talked about before um, in terms of like Kevin doing data analysis or Zama, you know, the struggles of, of adjusting to a new space at this time. But how's this, you know, we just want to hear you talk a little bit about how current events in this really historic, unprecedented moment, how's that spilled over into your, your really burgeoning academic careers? Um, Anyone can start with that. Yeah, I think that on one hand, it's really great to hear folks on um, 
cable news talking about racial inequality. It's really great to hear them use all of the words that we use all, mm-hmm. all of the time, you know, to describe these these different issues that we face. But, you know, but it's also kind of like, duh, <laughs> thanks for, for catching up to where we are. And, and, and in my place in, in what I do as a researcher, you know, seeing all of these things unfold so quickly in terms of, you know, I have family that's, that's been sick. I usually have a lot of family members who are sick. You know, I've had family members get COVID. I've had family members die from COVID. I've had family members die from, you know, um, comorbid, you know, these comorbid diseases and, and all of these things and having to, to deal with that and then trying to find a piece of my dissertation to carve out, to acknowledge the fact that we do need to change our perspectives in how we look at things. And we need to celebrate, you know, um, the accomplishments of a lot of communities of color that really took up the mantle and said, hey, people aren't gonna help us. This disease is ravaging our our communities, much like many diseases have been ravaging our communities. We need to do something about it. And just watching, you know, indigenous populations really come together and, you know, figure out a way to get smartphones to communities, get internet to communities, because now we're all online, you know, just really seeing seeing something done, um, especially by communities of color has really been empowering. And um, making that part of my dissertation is something that was really important to me. And so I'm carving out a piece, a piece for that. Um, instead of focusing on just death, 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 well, mm-hmm. let's focus on how do we prevent death and mm-hmm. how do people like, uh, my family that's very much reflected in the research that I do, how do we, how do we move forward as communities of color to save our own lives? Because we can't wait around for other people to do it. And I think that this pandemic really showed that. If, if you don't mind me asking, how's that work being taken by like your advisor and stuff? Because I think personally, I think it's humongously important and like a huge part of the kind of stories that we have to tell about uh, black and brown populations in this country that we don't often, but we don't often make space for them in academia, right? And so has you, have you been getting pushback on that um, kind of like pivoting um, in this moment or has people just been like, hey, yeah, that's great. No, my advisor has been extremely supportive great. in oh, cool. you know me wanting to incorporate um, this, this piece of hope into, into my dissertation. Um, he's always been supportive of, uh, of <laughs> the different pivots that I've had throughout my academic <laughs> career. And, and I truly appreciate that because I know that that's few and far between for a lot of students. A lot of students don't, you know, get to have a advisor that is supportive of the research that they want to do. And, you know, my advisor is always open to, you know, hearing about my experiences because there's that I'm I'm a black and indigenous female and he's a white male and so he doesn't know anything about what I'm experiencing or what I'm going through. But having someone willing to listen and having someone willing to you know engage 
with me as I engage with the literature and as I engage with my community. I think that's been, I think that's been a really positive thing that's come out of this whole crazy situation. So yeah, shout out to my advisor. (laughs) (laughs) For me, I um, have had to, or I I wanted to, but also kind of forced to integrate the pandemic into my classes. I'm a health researcher, so I I teach health courses, but even in my intro to sociology course, I um, made sure to do a week on uh, the misuse of data. So how data isn't objective. And so the dangers of researchers who just talk to other researchers, leaving journalists to take our data and, you know, run these different narratives. And so an example that I used was, you know, the media keeps saying black and brown people don't want to get vaccines Mm -hmm. and they Mm -hmm. don't want to get tested. And I'm like, no, it's racism has caused medical mistrust. It's not like, like, oh, I don't want to get better. It's like they have experimented on groups of people. And so I, you know, I highlight examples and then I had them write a paper where I say, look at the news and tell me, you know, what you're, and had them answer questions about how are they framing the data? What data are they drawing on? Do they give you, what detail do they give you? What details don't they, do they leave out? And it was great to see that it was, you know, it was a, a methods course, but it allowed them to not only integrate what they're already viewing in their lives, but kind of see that sociology um, is, in our lived environments, but also that just because you have a PhD or there's a professor talking to you, it doesn't mean that you take everything they say as, you know, the Bible for some people, if that's your book that you believe or to take it as fact, but like you should be cautious and weary and like question things. And so you should question these facts, especially in the Trump administration. You know, mm-hmm. we, we've learned that like you can't just always trust. And I think as people of color who are doing health research, that's been one of the, the things we've had to learn is we kind of had to unlearn some of the ways that mm-hmm. we're taught about our own communities and some of the narratives that they teach us. Mm-hmm. So they taught me that the immigrant paradox, you know, immigrants are right. somehow healthy. <laughs> Now, maybe they eat tortillas and not the corn. <laughs> oh my God. Like, you repeat that and you write that in your answer, like maybe it's the corn. But uh-huh. don't think the question, like, that's kind of messed up. Like, why are we essentializing people like that? Like, this group of people that you're, that I'm a part of, is not, it's being framed differently. And so mm. I'm hoping to be able to do that as faculty now. And it was kind of nice to be able to do that. It was one of the few positions where I felt empowered as faculty that I actually mm-hmm. felt that I could do something. Um, I was able to in my course, you know, whether these 50 students agreed with me or not, I forced them to have to, you know, listen to me and hopefully take something away from that so that they could recall and say, I, I remember one time someone telling me that I shouldn't, it's okay to question the ways that. Um, the narratives that I'm hearing about groups of people. And so that's been really, um, for me as a health researcher, a way that I feel like I could take some power in this helplessness that we've been talking about as researchers, how, how, what do we health researchers, where do we fit in trying to fix quote unquote this pandemic? And so for me, it's like, well, I can kind of talk about the dangers of how these facts about the coronavirus and racial disparities are being played out in the media. Wow, so 
for me in in my personal life i think it it has been like a like like a really interesting experience because i have been i i have the i had the opportunity to be like publicly on, on the media i have been appear in in newspapers and and television in my country and and i think that's like for the from from my medical promotion that nobody wanted to be a public health researcher or anything like everyone wants to be a cardiologist or a surgeon or or many other like medical specialties like public health is the last like fancy like just doing right. computers not seeing patients like that's boring right so i i am hoping that that spot gave me the opportunity to encourage other physicians mm -hmm. and other people to take these careers and so we we will be able to be more prepared for that also, I, ha I, I feel that I have like the moral responsibility to speak out for many other immigrants that are here in the mm -hmm. US that many of them like didn't receive like the stimulus checks or the mm -hmm. tax uh, cuts or, or they, they don't have access to health insurance. Mm -hmm. So it has been really difficult for them to even access to, to testing. So how, mm -hmm. how we can build that better. And, and I think that I have that, that I am in a, in a privileged position to speak that out because I am, I, I, I like any of them could be me. So I, I, I just have, like I born in a, in, in a different position, but I like could be me. Yeah, so we're oftentimes in the, in the prediction business. So either in prediction or, or understanding business. And so um, we like to wrap up with a couple of hot takes um, just to, to see where, where you all are. So just in a, in a moment or two, what's, what's your prediction about academia? Where are we going from here? Um, how do you think we'll pivot out of this, this current moment? The cynic in me wants to say that we won't learn anything. Like, yeah. if, if history, it is. <laughs> I mean, 2000 and, and the, two, after the 2008 recession, mm -hmm. you know, academia took a hit. And mm -hmm. then what I learned is they didn't really learn anything because mm -hmm. I was in a terrible position where the university was like, well, we don't have any backup money for your salary. So I'm sorry, we, you might not have a job. So part of me is, is saying, I mean, I, you know, history tends to say that nothing will change, but hopefully people like me or, uh, I mean, I'm just one person though, like, can I really take the institution? But hopefully with media, more social media, at least we can like talk about the, say the cynicism and like be real about it and not like go in with blinders and say like, oh, academia is like all roses, but be real with each other and say, this institution really, really isn't this, you know, bed of flowers that they're selling us to be. We have to go in with, you know, all being really real and being really aware of what we're getting into. So that's my real honest take. Sure. Might not be too positive. <laughs> after so much, you know, you come out of this pandemic real different. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I mean, it's like you said already with the like, right, we know for a fact that women and particularly women of color have for years been doing a lot of like kind of un, uh, kind of unrecognized work and like kind of like managing students and like kind of like doing the things you described earlier. And for we haven't done anything about that, right? It's not like this is a new problem, like you said. So I do get the like the, the uh, kind of lack of optimism that like this institution can actually be reactive in a way that'll be helpful. 
Yeah, I think I'm also cautiously optimistic, cautiously pessimistic, <laughs> whatever <laughs> you want to call it. But I, I think that academia has a real moment right now where we can pivot and we can change the way that we teach. We can change the type of research we do. We can make ourselves the center of you know, this information hub, we can disseminate the information to places that it needs to go. So real people can use our, our, you know, our research, real people can, can connect with what we're trying to say. So we don't come against this moment in time where people are just starting to learn about structural racism. People are just starting to learn about the impacts of discrimination. This is a real moment for academia. I hope that we will change. I know a lot of graduate students who are pivoting their research. I know a lot of academics who are starting to look differently at the way that they teach. And I think that's amazing because I think that it's needed and for academia to survive, I think that we absolutely need to change. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, for me, I think that at least we will learn how to teach via Zoom. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is a positive take. Yeah. <laughs> we will be more teachy after all. <laughs> Zoom master. Zoom master, yeah, that's it. No, but I, I, I also think that we will, we also, I, I hope that we will be better like in every, in every sense. Um, like also at the beginning, we thought that the COVID was the, the big equalizer, right? Like everyone is getting COVID, like we all have the same risk, but we we, we actually know that that's not the, the truth. That's, that's totally different. And, and there is social like constructs and, and social inequalities that creates this, this system, like this structural racism around us. And we need to fight them. It's 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 built by humans, and 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 we as humans need to to deconstruct that. And I and I think it's possible. It takes it takes time. It will take time, but but it's possible. I am too optimistic, maybe. Yeah. No. No. That's, no, that's perfect. That, that's perfect. Okay. So that uh, we've been. I could talk with y'all for hours, um, but I think we're almost at an hour, so we gotta end it. Um, thanks again, everyone, so much for joining us today and offering up some honest, critical insight um, kind of about what COVID has meant for you and your careers. Uh, and hopefully we can kind of all pull together um, as a collective and, uh, you know, put into place some of the support that our early career scholars really need to kind of um, weather the next uh, few years as we try to recover from the pandemic. Um, so thanks again to our uh, guests and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And we'll see you next time on another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations.